Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Philip Elliott, a longtime friend, a veteran Washington journalist, and a Washington correspondent for Time. He also is the author of Time's new daily political newsletter called The DC Brief. Phil gives us the latest political update just one week before Election Day. Phil, we've just today had 66 million people already voted, um, maybe uh, about 48% of the total votes uh, in 2016, certainly more than early voted in 2016. What does this really mean to the election and election day? Well, it, it means a couple things, and two, more than one thing can be true. So let's not saying one is at the exclusion of the other. But the main thing I'm seeing is people are very interested in this. Unlike previous elections where everyone says, oh, this is the most important election of your lifetime. There is a sense anecdotally among voters that they actually believe at this time, that they understand there is a very clear contrast of who's on the ballot this fall, um, whether they want to stick with Donald Trump. And there are signs that he is stronger than he was four years ago. Or do you want to go with Joe Biden, who has run a traditional get out of Trump's way campaign and just let let the guy have the headlines because most of the headlines are not good for him. Um, it is at the same time, the pandemic has very much changed how people see voting as an act of responsibility. That is it responsible to wait in line for hours on Election Day? If you can just, you know, send it, get plan ahead, get your ballot by mail send it back by mail, drop it at one of the drop boxes, drop it at an early vote station? Or do you just want to count on the influx of interest translating to miles and miles of lines and want to do your part by voting early? These state-by-state -state numbers are just astronomical in how they're, how they're just ricocheting. I'm looking at North Carolina, where we both have an interest, right. and it's three times as large already in North Carolina as it ever got. And, and we still have a week to go. It is also, I would not discount the doubts that have been planted about mail-in voting from the president. He has been hammering at this without evidence for months. And if you don't believe that the mail-in vote, vote-in absentee ballots are going to accurately be reflected, you're going to show up at the early voting place to make sure your voice is heard. And that's not limited just to people who um, are going to vote for Trump. It has taken its hold among Democrats, so much so that a Pew poll um, in recent weeks found 25% of the electorate has no confidence in the vote-by-mail system. And there is no evidence to back that up, just a lot of um, scowling from the president. Well, there is a prediction I just read that 85 million people will vote before Election Day. And out of about 240 million eligible voters, that's a healthy percentage. How is that changing campaigning? I mean, this last week of campaigning, does it mean anything? You know, I, I read about this in the DC brief, the Time newsletter that we put out every day. Um, sign up for it, please, everyone. Um, but you know, there's you no longer have election day. You you have election month. 
you don't have a 72 hour operation to get out the vote where you spend the last weekend knocking on doors and making sure everyone has a ride. You, you now have, in some cases, a 48 day window where every news cycle is won or lost and it's influencing voters and their patterns. You cannot just run to get out the vote program for that limited window. It's, you're, you're basically setting up a month and a half of 24 hours a day camp political operation because if you miss an errant tweet or let a fact go undisputed even for even for a day there are people who are influenced by that as a result these campaign staffers are exhausted i talked to my friends on both campaigns and they are working around the clock from their couches at least during normal campaigns you go into the office there's a camaraderie you're all in this together there's a foxhole mentality now at best you're zooming with your bosses but you're not making any of these interpersonal connections in a meaningful way you're working in isolation and it's it's really just glum and grim for these guys and gals i will say though that there is a true belief among the rank and file members of both campaigns that what they're doing does matter and will shape the course of history um which is a you don't always hear in the voices of even the senior strategists on campaigns. I remember four years ago, about this time, I was in um, Brooklyn at Hillary Clinton's headquarters talking to someone, and I'm just like, so how are you doing? Every day is a slog, but at the end of this thing, Hillary Clinton will be the president. And that was kind of like, I'm not a Hillary supporter. This person was kind of intimating, but she is the nominee, and we got to get her in there. You're not hearing that this time. People have fallen in, they, more, more than just falling in line with Joe Biden, they've fallen in love with Joe Biden if they're working on a staff, that they've set aside their ideological problems with them for now. Those are going to come roaring back to the fore the day after we have a, a president or a president-elect um, at hand, that the, the, the party fight is not going away anytime soon. They've just put it on pause for now to serve the greater good of getting rid of President Trump. So President Trump's been doing all of these rallies and with the with the early vote what is he from your veteran perspective trying to accomplish with these rallies is it to capture the day's news cycle is it to persuade what the handful of undecided voters is it for turnout what or all of the above it can be all of the above but there are only there's only so much utility in each of those baskets yes the the president can control the news cycle at any given point in any day any president can um, you can do it from the rose garden i mean there's literally a theory about the rose garden strategy where you just run for re-election by going out your back door and no matter what you say, it's going to be taken live on the cable networks and it's going to be in every newspaper in this country. As far as persuasion, there is, there is a very, very limited universe that has not had its mind made up about this president for about the last two years. Joe Biden, people have come around since his convention. There, there are fewer and fewer people who say they don't have an opinion of Joe Biden. What you talk, when you talk to the strategists, though, behind the president's campaign, it's very explicitly, to, in their words, juice the base, to get the base stoked up. I, I was watching last week where President Trump went into an, a community about a half hour outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, for one of these big rallies. It's a county he won by two to one margin. It's, it's Trump country through and through. But he was still going there for a friendly audience where he was talking about Barack Hussein Obama and making all of these claims that the coronavirus was going to solve itself. It was a base that loved to see that. It was a big crowd that the base outside of that audience loves to see. And it made him feel good. You cannot discount the effect and the, the impetus of the campaign to reinforce the president and his mood and to, tell, to, to show him what he believes to be true, find it and prove it to him. At this point, the president truly thinks he's winning and that all the polls are wrong and that everyone who's a political professional is an idiot the same way they were four years ago 
and he is manifest. Um, he has manifest destiny to stay in the White House uh, for another four years. It's it's a remarkable. I've never seen a campaign with a candidate so willing to set aside data and evidence to go with his gut. We saw it four years ago, though, and boy, it worked. I mean, it, it just it it happened. But at that point, we didn't have four years of uh, his being in office uh, to to compare it with. It was, you know, the new kid on the block, so to speak. Uh, let me let me ask you a, a couple of things, and and you know, I just don't understand. It. I thought I understood Washington pretty well, and you and I have talked over the years, and and uh, yeah, I thought I had a pretty good grasp. Uh, we have Mark Meadows coming to the pandemic, so um, we're just not going to bother. But what good does that serve? I honestly have no idea. Uh, Meadows is usually a pretty shrewd operator who gets press more than um, almost any other member. When he was in the House, he very much understood how to get press. Um, he ran about and revamped the White House press office to make it more professional. Um, and it has to some degree paid off on specific instances for the president. But that disclosure was not one that any of us expected. And you could see the um, disbelief in Jake Tapper's face, voice, just almost jumped out of, his feet out of frame. He was just so <laughs> taken aback by the state. Literally. Um, it was, but... But that is something that, for better or for worse, this White House, more so than any, any other that I've seen, is willing to say the loud part soft and say the soft part loud. And this might just be how the president views this and how the White House is approaching it. It is flying in the face of almost every public health expert we speak to, but that is just what the president believes to be true. And if the president believes it, then it how about it shall be. Another thing that was beyond my comprehension was Jared Kushner coming out yesterday and say blacks can only be successful as much as they want to be successful and will only help them uh, if they truly want to be successful. It, 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 and I'm paraphrasing, but but it was to me insane. Well, you're paraphrasing that accurately. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's worth a listen. It really does betray a lot of the work that the president and his allies have been trying to do with African-American voters. I mean, there is, uh, there, there, there's a small number of African-American voters whose ballot is up for grabs. The president has actually a compelling case to make to them, and he has done it from time to time. Criminal justice reform under him remedied a lot of systemic racism in the sentencing guidelines, a lot of a prison population, um, which is disproportionately African-American, um, not because they commit more crimes, but because of the way policing um, schedules are structured. Um, the, the unemployment is at you know lows. Income is at high. Black home ownership is at record levels. There is a case to be made for the president on um, his time, his four years, as they, as they relate to black voters. And then you have Jared Kushner go out there and say this, which is demonstrably not helpful. I, I've, I've been reading a lot of um, this longitudinal study out of American University about black voters' attitude. And there is a significant willingness to consider Trump, especially among black voters under 30, especially among black men under 30, there is less of a belief that the president is a racist with black voters under 30 than among everyone else. So, I mean, there, there is an opportunity for Trump to chip away at the democratic stronghold of black voters. But anyone who saw that clip of the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, he, I mean, he has a White House role, White House staff, saying this 
th- that basically yeah, if said if so, black if you weren't so lazy, harder, we could help you get, more. They, they, I mean, it would be better. <laughs> translated, that's what he said. It's something I, 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 I've been reading a lot of the um, civil rights history right now. And it's something you would have expected someone from the 1940s or 50s to say as they were blaming Reconstruction um, for the black, the black Americans' woes. Uh, and not, you know, the way systemically they were disenfranchised. So, so let me from back up here a little bit and and take a little broader view. We had Meadows with the, you know, we can't do anything about the virus. It's too big for us. We had Kushner yesterday. We had Meadows when the president was in the hospital saying, oh, he was uh, in in dire shape. We we've had this these disparate. Uh, comments coming from White House advisors and and people who should be in the know. My question to you is, is none of this coordinated? You have covered campaigns since back to Mitt Romney, I know. And, and it, you, this a campaign usually has coordinated talking points, coordinated people speaking, this just seems to be chaos. It does. I mean, going back to my first campaign in 2004, they would fax them out. So you would literally intercept the talking points on your on fax machines. And they were disciplined. They had footnotes in, in, in both the Kerry and the um, Bush campaigns did this. Now, the RNC does send the talking points out. They're called the GOP talkers they just aren't getting to the right people. Like all the cable news pundits are usually pretty on script. They don't go too far afield. They're all auditioning for their next job. um, If if the president gets a second term, I mean, the greatest HR pipeline in Washington right now is Fox news to the white white house. Um, No one currently in power seems to be listening to these. Um, Part of it was for a while there, Kaylee and hope, the two principal comms advisors to the president um, had coronavirus and were recovering. Kellyanne Conway, who is a master of message discipline, has left the White House and is advising from the outside. And Mercedes Schlapp, who's very capable at this, is on the outside doing, um, um, trying to be an advisor from the outside. Ultimately, though, these, these, these individuals who go before the cameras and kind of improvise their way through it, it shows a level that they believe that they are in charge and it's not the president or the machinery around the president. It's that they as an individual are in charge. And that's kind of the first rule of when being a Washington staffer is you don't make yourself the story. You, you are there to help the boss do his or her job. And with these guys, and they're in this case, they're both guys stepping out and stepping on the president's message. It's, it's really a disservice that you and I are having this conversation as opposed to not having a conversation about what the president wants to do for the economy or coronavirus or social security. We're talking about, we're talking about staffers. I mean, Mark Meadows, when he, when he stepped down from Congress and left the House, he went back to being a staffer. I mean, it's the most right. powerful staffer on the planet, but you're still a staffer. So let me ask you a really far-fetched question, perhaps. Um, if I'm in, before we move to Biden, I want to stay on Trump for a moment. Uh, if I've an, if I were an evangelical, if I were part of that part of Trump's base, and we swallowed a whole lot of stuff to. Uh, elect Trump because we wanted judges. Well, we've got judges. We wanted the Supreme Court. Now we got six three on the Supreme Court, and we'll have that for generations. Maybe we don't have to swallow him anymore. Maybe he's done for us what we wanted him to do, and we can be done with him. Is there any talk of that? That would require a lot of people to to admit they, well, they made a mistake. They, they wouldn't think it was ago. a mistake. They they and picked him big, because 
he was to do their bidding, but now he's done their bidding, so we're done. We'll wash our hands. There's a, still a whole lot more. I mean, ju- I mean, you you could see Clarence Thomas stepping down as soon as the day after the election. Like there, th- that would then be a seven-two court. I mean, that that that's just very sexy for evangelicals. Um, you could you could see a ton more regulation go by the wayside. We still have there, Obamacare is still on the books. I mean, sorry, but it is. Um, we'll see if it survives uh, Supreme Court hearing a week yeah, after election day with new justice Barrett on there um we, we will see i'm i'm <laughs> i i you are you are you are the lawyer tom so i will defer to you um i i don't would never presume to question that um politically i i don't know what will there is there and also, the president has proven an incredible for the mo- for most of these four years an incredible fundraiser. Um, and if you think the map this year looks bad, the map in twenty twenty two doesn't look good um, for Republicans in the Senate. It's going to be a lot of races that are going to be tight. They're going to need a lot of money. The president can help because you know he can only raise so much for his presidential library if he wins reelection. Um, he doesn't need to continue fundraising for his own political ambitions. Um, and there's also going to be battle battle lines for the U um, S house are going to be redrawn and that they're going to be a lot of these districts where the president is going to be helpful. Um, Cause the, after the census, the entire map gets torn up and in most States it's state legislatures drawing political maps. Um, so you're going to have a gerrymandered map that could actually, that could kick Nancy Pelosi, um, take, take the gavel from her. And if you're an evangelical, you can you can use a lot of squirrely logic to say a vote for Trump is a vote to oust Nancy Pelosi. Okay. In <laughs> it, it does take a bit of a stretch, but uh, I, I follow I follow your thread uh, on that. Let's shift over to to Biden now. Uh, let me preface this by telling you that. I'm sure you know this, but every Democrat that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot over the last week or so, uh, are almost apoplectic. They they just uh, they're they're going crazy, uh, thinking that the Hillary ghost will will reappear, and they point that that Biden's eh, sort of campaigning, sort of not. Uh, you know, he's got surrogates out there, but he himself, uh, is going to Iowa, going to Georgia, going to Texas. Um, so they're concerned about the final push. Um, what can you tell us about that? So I, I also speak with democratic strategists who are very con- they understand it, but they are still skittish. They, one of them put it to me that it's 2016 PTSD, that there, there are signs that these states are in play, Arizona in particular. Georgia is more about the two open Senate races. There's the standard scheduled one, then there's the special to replace um, Johnny Isaacson. There's a lot of energy in Georgia. It's forcing the president to spend money there, money that he doesn't have. Um, and it's and it's part of this what's what's known as party building. That okay, you get someone through the door in 2020. Can we be? Can we get them back in 2024? If you can get right. someone back to back elections, you've created a lifelong voter, and that is really important for Democrats who who have who have really been energized and are truly under the uh, command in the state of Stacey Abrams, who has no elected position any longer. But she is the queen of democratic politics in Georgia, and that is her fiefdom. That is her political machine. And in, in, in Stacey, a lot of Democrats trust. But you're also looking at every time there, it, there is an expense cost for everything the Biden campaign is doing. That for every trip, say, to, to Atlanta, they're not going to Westerville. For every trip um, to, to Ann Arbor, you're not going to Athens. So there, there is this trade-off and you, 
candidates' time is the most valuable commodity on any campaign. And they're spending a lot of it um, close to home, trying to be safe, and a lot of it in places that are aspirational and not part of the traditional blue wall. I will say, though, they're, they're, Biden might be onto something. You saw the president right. take down most of his ads from Ohio. He basically retreated from Iowa and Ohio to, for, to shore up his um, political spending in Georgia and North Carolina. That tells you, I mean, where, where candidates spending money tells you just as much as anything, because that's where they see either opportunity or vulnerability. And I mean, the fact that the president's on defense in North Carolina, I mean, that's a state that had not been, has been won once. What more do you anticipate President Obama doing in this last week? And what difference, if any, will it make? I just watched the president um, speaking in Florida. He is getting back in the game. He has he never loved politics for its own sake. He thought it kind of beneath him. But he sees himself now more, he's more comfortable out there to, making the case for Joe Biden and against Donald Trump than he ever was making the case for himself. I know I, the rap against President Obama was that he was arrogant, he was full of himself, larger than life, superstar celebrity. Like, I mean, I covered the guy for 10 years, um, dating back to his primary. And there is some of that. But a lot of it is at his core being, the president, President Obama, didn't really like that. He thought it was superfluous. He thought it silly beneath him. He wanted to go change the world, not entertain a bunch of Ivy League educated reporters flying on Air Force One. Now the stakes are a little different. And he's out there as the attack dog. It's showing just how little respect he has for uh, President Trump and just how good of a wordsmith he is to be able to just twist the knife in ways that really get under President Trump's skin. I, could, I, I, I expect to see, I expect to hear from him every day between now and Election Day. And then I, I would not be surprised if the election is in doubt, if the outcome is in doubt, if you don't see the likes of President Obama, President Bush, President Carter, kind of do, get the President's Club back together and be like, okay, everyone go back to your yeah. corners. Grandpa's here. We're, we're going to do this right. That's right. <laughs> like, don't make <laughs> me it. turn this car around. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to talk about uh, Kamala Harris uh, a bit. Um, some Democrats are e excited. Some Democrats I've talked to say that she's proven to be a lightweight. Um, how do you assess what she's brought to the ticket and to the campaign? So the thing about vice presidents is the successful ones do no harm. And that is, that is the most success you're really going to have. Um, Kamala Harris has had no major gaffes. She has been a loyal lieutenant. She has not 
taken the bait on, well, that's what Joe thinks. Uh, I have my own mind, but she's like, nope, a Biden administration will do this, and a Biden administration will do this. And she's very careful to make clear that it's Joe Biden running the show. There's a couple strains, strands of thought to this. One, you'd never, and this is, this is what plagued Hillary Clinton's choice four years ago, is you'd never want a voter to go into the voting booth and think, man, I'm fine with this, but man, I wish the names were flipped. You do, you, that, is, that is killer for enthusiasm. Um, and Biden campaign, Kamala Harris is very careful about not overstepping and outshining Joe Biden. Uh, she has not contradicted him. She's been a very loyal member of the Biden Democratic Party. Um, and then there's, you cannot discount questions of race and gender here. That it's one thing for Mike Pence to go out there and be cocky. It's another thing for Kamala Harris to go out there and say the same thing in the same tone and be uppity. There is just this unfair rule that white men can get away with something in politics that candidates of color and that women cannot. It's just one, one of them is, oh, he's confident. Oh, he's, she's arrogant. Oh, he's, he's enthusiastic. She's shrill. We watched this play out with Hillary Clinton four years ago. No one was no one was perfect on this. Everyone made mistakes in their coverage of introducing gendered language into this. It has taken a lot of reflection, a lot of conversations in our newsrooms about how we discuss um, candidates, implicit biases. And I'm, I'm very happy we're taking this seriously, both after Me Too and now with Black Lives Matter. Um, but Kamala Harris's team knew what was, I mean, knew that this was not going to be easy. This could be very ugly. You can see it at even, you saw it over the weekend when Trump was in North Carolina and the incumbent senator from North Carolina who serves in the Senate with Senator Harris right. pretended he didn't know how to pronounce her name as though it were something foreign. It's like, dude, like, you, you, <laughs> no, you're, we're, we're better than this. Um, but that's that is not that that has proven not to. Yeah, he even the used the the term Kamala Mala or something to to that effect to uh, infer African uh, in in his uh, <laughs> use of her name, which which was just absurd. But yeah, um, it got a lot of news coverage. I have to say that. Um, yeah, and you, you didn't have to buy an ad saying something, uh, implying something racist. That's, you just got right. it looped over and over again on hey, the table. Hey, talk about, and and I don't know if you have any better sense of this than than anybody. Although I give you kudos for all of your knowledge. Uh, the talk about the silent Trump voter, um, and I want to phrase the question this way, you know. It, do we still have the silent Trump voter, number one? And number two, are there silent Biden voters out there who perhaps were formerly Trump voters? This is the question I'm going to – I've got a list of counties um, on one of my tabs, yeah, right. many, many tabs on my computer screens right now of uh, – of counties that went Obama, Obama, Trump. And those are going to be the places where we see the impact of either the silent Trump voters saying, no, we're, we're just going to be silent altogether now or be non-voting Trump. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of variables here, but I do think there is a silent Trump voter. I, I talked to my family and I, I they, they, they won't come out right out and say it, but they will talk about they're, they're, they don't love Biden and they really don't trust him. Um, silent Biden voters, there's a study out of Northwestern that's worth watching, it's, or you can find it on time.com, um, a story out of Northwestern University that it is less about, for both candidates, less about loving the candidate that you're behind and more about antipathy towards the other that really love is not motivating anything here. I, I remember going into the crowds of Hillary Clinton and seeing especially 
women of a certain age just shedding tears of excitement and joy that maybe one of their own was going to get into the White House. I remember the same thing, especially in 2008, less of African-American voters seeing making such an emotional connection. That's not to say I'm not seeing it with Biden's crowds. I mean, in Iowa, there was basically everyone who's ever had a family member diagnosed with cancer found a Joe Biden in Iowa, and they spent time talking about it in a true moment of empathy and connection. But you're not seeing that now in the general election. What you are seeing is a lot of Democratic voters having such fear, if not hatred, of the president that they're they're lining up behind Biden. And you look at the crowds that Trump is drawing, the enormous crowds largely unmasked, and there is there is there is there is a frustration. There is an anger. There's with some of them when they start chanting lock her up, a rage. Uh, grievances that of being of a system being unfairly stacked against them, and in many cases those those systems are perpetuated by Trump and Biden over the years. But there, no one is in love with Donald Trump. The silent Trump voters are the people who say, "Yeah, I wish he wouldn't tweet," but yeah, he's not been great for the farming community in Iowa. But he still got us the subsidies to screw, to fix how he screwed up the trade war with China. They, no one, no one really is putting on a MAGA hat out of um, true love of Trump. They're they're doing it as a protest in many cases, and it, it's kind of a, it's a political statement to say like you know, forget you neighbors with the Biden sign. Okay, now another strategic question, then I want to get to some issues. And the strategic question is, uh, over the last week, I've been reading a lot about uh, the real push for uh, Republican registration in many states and how it will appear on election day uh, that's not being counted uh, at this point. Can you talk about that early registration? Yeah, so this is a place where Republicans have very quietly but very effectively moved to get people on voter rolls. Keep in mind, four years ago, the Trump campaign was basically Jared Kushner and Brad Parscal flying around on the plane building strategy midair. And Steve Bannon. There wasn't a coordinated effort. They worked a little and Steve Bannon, they worked a little bit with the Republican National Committee, but there, I mean, it just was, it was not a well-functioning machine. This time, with the benefit of four years and a lot of money, they've been able to figure out who Trump voters were, who Trump voters might be, cross-coordinating te- cross, um, with social media posts. It's like, okay, buddy, you're posting all this MAGA stuff, but you're not a registered voter. I'm going to make sure you are a registered voter, sir. It is really impressive what they've done, and to their credit, they've expanded. Um, they've expanded the Democrat, lowercase d, Democratic universe in this country, um, and to my mind, that is that is always a good thing. The other thing that Democrats have lagged behind. I talked to some Democratic strategists about this, and they were partly on defense and partly legitimately believing that they had already registered everyone left to register, that there was no one left to register after Hillary Clinton, that Barack Obama over eight years brought out every Democrat he could. Hillary Clinton had a massive machine running in every state trying to turn out vote um, and find new registrations. Um, they're, they're just out of Democrats to find is their argument. That said, everyone claiming these, these Republicans, they're new, Pollsters are not relying on the list from four years ago or even four months ago. The pollsters are updating their list in real time and doing like they're doing the likely voter screens. They're not doing registered voters at this point. They're modeling people who will show up, not people who are registered. Right. And that's an important change um, from four years ago. Also, the pollsters are being much more careful about um, calibrating their samples to reflect different levels of education and different genders. 
So you're looking at much more detailed polling reports now than we had four years ago that reflect a much more explicit emphasis on getting the, ter- the, the universe of the actual electorate right. That said, polling is, it's, it's a, it's, it is a science, but there is, you know, a margin of error that's built into it. And really, 5% of all polls are garbage anyway. There's just no getting around that uh, 95% accuracy um, of polls within a margin of error. Five percent is garbage, and you just got you just got to live with it. Which is why you should never treat a poll as a prediction or any single poll as gospel. Talk to me about issues that are going to be in the forefront for the next seven days. I assume, if I were advising the president, I'd go with the uh, economy. Uh, if I were Biden, I would go with the pandemic. Um, how far off am I? You're not far off at all, but giving the <laughs> advice and having the advice followed, followed are two very different things. I mean, as much as we, we talk about the president as president Trump being this braggadocious guy who'll go out there and put on a show, Joe Biden can put his foot in his mouth pretty regularly um, without much prompting. He has proven much more disciplined than I would have predicted when I was spending time with him out in Iowa, New Hampshire, a, more than a year ago. Um, I mean, I, I like Biden got in the race um, May of 19. So it's, we're, we're coming up on, we, we spent some time um, chasing Joe Biden on this campaign. And four years ago, when he was struggling whether to run or not, I was talking to the same people in his circle and they had the same concerns they have now is that Joe Biden is a sincere and authentic person who doesn't always calibrate to the political moment. Um, and you, you saw president Trump trying to draw that out of Biden during the two debates. It's one, the one pressure point that you're never going to get away um, that you're ne- that's always sure to trigger Joe Biden is implying he or his family are somehow dishonest. That that their honor is something that will trigger a rage, an Irish rage that you just <laughs> uh, really takes a lot to control. I mean, one of his former former top aide to him um, said it, it was um, it's it's like triggering uh, like a giant. That it just you, you can't like it's like poking the incredible hulk it just it is an emotional reaction where you come for my family he you are you're in bad you're in bad territory. so if the president can't stay on a strategic message what do we expect in this last week just harangue after harangue and grievance after grievance and uh sort of a scattershot Yeah, it's 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 always diff- it's always dangerous to predict with the president. But if passes prologue, he's going to try to change this thing up a couple times and throw Biden off his game every chance he can get. You're seeing that. I mean, this morning, every time the president tweets, my phone vibrates. This morning, it was vibrating so much I was thinking it, someone was calling me because it, it was it was like every yeah. every three or four seconds he was retweeting something. And that's, it was just, he's, he's going to try to do that. But I mean, for a lot of these guys, the last ad, there are no more ads to buy. There are no more ads to release. There, there are a handful of them, but they're not going to be game changers. And you're out of debate. You, we're out of big national moments. So unless the president can create something using his presidential soapbox, this, this, this is going to come down to the wire. And Joe Biden has been very careful not to not to get unwanted headlines. There's there's just a careful resolve there, very similar to what very similar to what I covered with Hillary Clinton four years ago, but also reminiscent of how Barack Obama ran out the tape at the end of 2012. That Superstorm Sandy came barreling in at the last minute, and J- Barack Obama and Joe Biden were very careful to be like. We're steady leadership. We're not going to be thrown off this. We're actually going to pull some negative ads and we're going to 
had this moment of unity where he and Chris Christie hugged on the tarmac, basically saying, Barack Obama is president of all Americans as we're going through this flood. Do you think for a minute Donald Trump would embrace uh, a Democratic no. governor at this moment? <laughs> no, he's on Twitter saying they're running the states into the ground and, and she- coddling criminals and like urging Antifa. Like it, it's just there, there's no effort there. And that's why tr- Trump is not making a play for any persuadables. He is doing 100% play to the base. Um, I wrote in a column this week about Trump, Trump is the master of dog whistles, and he's playing. He's playing in <laughs> harmony at this point. It's so like a harmonica in harmony, right? Uh, exactly. But that's a strategy, and it might work. So, for him. what are you looking at this, these last seven days? You do a column every day, and and by the way, uh, if for our listeners out there, if you have not read the DC brief. It's a daily newsletter that comes to you uh, from time. Uh, Phil is there every day. Uh, it, it's just dynamite. How do people get a hold of this, Phil, first of all? You can sign up. Sure. And thanks for the plug, Tom. I'm, having, I'm actually having fun with this. Uh, you can sign up for it. It's free. Uh, time.com slash DC brief. It comes to you every afternoon. It's a reported column, basically out of Washington where I'm taking a look at something in the news, maybe something off the news and saying, okay, put down the jargon, put down the garble. Here, here's what's up. Here's what's really going on. Um, in the final week of this campaign, I'm using it to go through um, a handful of the swing states. Um, we've already been to Florida. Today's is uh, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan are coming up. And then over the weekend into Monday, we're going to unpack the rest of the states, Ohio, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, where I think the race is going to go. I could be way wrong. There could be a sleeper campaign in Minnesota. Who knows what, I mean, <laughs> New Hampshire could be a surprise with its four electoral votes. And before you laugh at New Hampshire, had Al Gore won New yeah, Hampshire that's in right, 2000, that's right. Florida would not have mattered. I'm always going to plug, I'm always going to plug in my, my, one of my favorite states of New Hampshire, um, just because it gets a ton of love and has a direct flight out of DCA. Um, but I'm maybe looking at early number returns. We're seeing these numbers through the roof, out of the, out of control. We're seeing a massive amount of spending on television. Um, I mean, it's, it's criminal. I mean, we, we've crossed the billion dollar mark on political ads. Um, so it's, it's just going to overwhelm these voters. And finally, I'm going to look at what states start positioning themselves on voter fraud allegations. This thing, I think everyone would do well not to expect Brian Williams on election. And the winner is NBC News has projected X is the president. (laughs) Don't 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 wait up for that. You're not going to get it. It's it's just um, it's it's probably not going to happen. And that's okay. That is fine. That means the system is working, that we're making sure every vote is counted and we're not rushing ahead with projections before. before we actually know what, where the votes are and who they're from. That is a good thing for democracy. Do not panic. It is working. That just because you're, you're going to have to wait for a couple hours doesn't mean the system is broken. It means the system is working. And the more accurate we count the more votes, the more accurately we count this incredible mass of votes is going to be good for the legitimacy of this election no matter who wins. Because this, the more people vote, the more legitimacy an election has, and that means democracy is stronger, and any authoritarian um, moments are going to be countered by a massive voice of the people saying, "This is what we want." Like there, the, there's a whole body of social science research and political science that say, you know, autocracy and high levels of turnout in a democracy are fundamentally incompatible. So for everyone worried that Joe Biden's going to take your guns or Donald Trump's not going to leave the White House, the more you vote, the more the more credibility. One last question I have. should have asked you earlier, but I, I would be remiss not to ask you. Uh, just from a media point of view, uh, the Lincoln Project has done stellar advertising. Uh, are they having any impact at all? 
you're getting under the president's skin, which I think might be the main goal here. Um, they they have goaded him into a lot of um, non-traditional responses. He clearly sees their tweets. He's, he's not happy about it. But if you're, it's giving permission to a handful of Republicans. It is a media phenomenon yeah. more than it is a persuasion. Um, it's a lot of, Oh so my God! They're, they're they making are. some of the best ads in democratic politics. I'll tell you that they are they are doing more to fire and up turning Democrats them out than anything quickly. Joe Biden's campaign is doing. That they are, yeah, they are going for the jugular. Where the Biden campaign is intentionally, they're they're intentionally considering. Okay, this might this is fun, but how does this advance our larger strategic goal? And if it doesn't go with if it doesn't go for that strategic goal, I don't care how funny it is. We're not doing it. And that is that is the mindset of the Biden campaign, whereas the Lincoln Project is we don't need people to like us. We're already pariahs in our own party. We're certainly not going to become Democrats, but man, we can have some fun. And they're doing some phenomenal ads. And I think that's going to be there are going to be dissertations written on uh, Rick and the team there, how they um, basically hijacked the moment and basically took over the media landscape. I'm sure that's true. Phil, I know you're a busy man. We're going to let you go, but thank you so much for giving us our week before election day update. Really appreciate it. Of course, Tom. Today, we've been talking with journalist and Time Washington correspondent Philip Elliott about the upcoming presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your friendly podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 